Welcome back to Roshcast, episode 14. We're back with weekly episodes leading up to the in-service. But before we begin, we have a little bit of housekeeping to cover here. In response to feedback, we're going to incorporate a brief pause after questions to give you more time to think about your answer or pause the podcast to think about the answer. Keep the feedback coming to Roshcast at roshreview.com. We're also going to pilot a new system for choosing questions for the podcast. As you're studying, if you come across a question that you would like for us to discuss in an episode, hit the Submit Feedback button in Rosh Review and just write the word Roshcast and submit. Let's get started with that orthopedics review I promised two weeks ago. Do you remember what the most common complication of an anterior shoulder dislocation is? Sure, a Hill-Sachs defect is definitely the most common complication and it occurs in about 40% of cases. That's right. And don't forget that the Hill-Sachs defect is a depression fracture of the posterolateral surface of the humeral head caused by the dislocation. We also covered fight bites. Which antibiotics should be given to those with fight bites, and what bacteria do we need to explicitly target? For a fight bite, we're concerned about iconella contamination. Orally, amoxicillin clavulinate is a go-to, whereas ampicillin sulbactam, cefoxitin, or piperacillin tazobactam can be given IV. Perfect. And talk me through the two ways to reduce a nursemaid's elbow. Well, you can either do supination followed by flexion, or you can attempt hyperpronation. X-rays usually aren't required as long as the child returns to pain-free functioning. Great. Let's move on and get started with the new material. So you're up first. Which of the following signs has the greatest likelihood ratio for acute otitis media? Is it A, impaired mobility of the tympanic membrane, B, a red tympanic membrane, C, a retracted tympanic membrane, or D, a ruptured tympanic membrane? I think the correct answer here has to be choice A. Impaired mobility of the tympanic membrane has the greatest likelihood ratio for acute otitis media. That's right. And in case you forgot, a likelihood ratio is pretty much what it sounds like. It's the likelihood that a certain test result is expected in a patient with a disorder compared to the likelihood of the same result that would be expected in a patient without that disorder. Right. And impaired mobility has a pretty high likelihood ratio at 31. The likelihood ratio is so high in this case because a normal mobility is very unlikely to be consistent with acute otitis media. For the other answer choices, a red tympanic membrane has a likelihood ratio of just 2. A retracted tympanic membrane has a likelihood ratio of 0.6, and a ruptured tympanic membrane is just highly nonspecific. Interestingly, a cloudy tympanic membrane actually has an even higher likelihood ratio of 34. Definitely interesting, and for otitis media, viral causes are by far the most common. If you suspect a bacterial cause, you're probably going to be thinking of streptococcus, haemophilus, or moraxella. And we typically treat with amoxicillin, which covers all three. Nice. Let's stick with the pediatrics theme for the next question. A four-year-old boy with hemophilia A presents to the ED after he fell from the monkey bars and struck his head. On exam, he has a large occipital hematoma and a GCS of 14. Which of the following should be administered? Is it A, cryoprecipitate, B, factor IX concentrate, C, factor VIII concentrate, or D, recombinant human factor 7A. So we have a child with hemophilia A with a potentially lethal head bleed. That should be treated with choice C, factor VIII concentrate. Yep. Severe hemophiliacs are at risk for spontaneous bleeds in addition to traumatic bleeds. In the case of a potentially life-threatening bleed, hemophiliacs should be assumed to have 0% factor activity, and their factors should be repleted immediately. Those with hemophilia A have decreased synthesis of factor VIII, whereas those with hemophilia B have decreased synthesis of factor IX. Yeah, and these are both X-linked recessive disorders. Don't forget that hemophilia B may also be called Christmas disease. Wait, hemophilia B is Christmas disease? The first patient to be described with hemophilia B had the last name Christmas, and the first report also happened to be published in the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal. Interesting trivia, I guess. 
Let me go over the other blood products listed in this question and answer. Cryoprecipitate was formerly the mainstay of therapy for hemophilia A as it contains the cold protein fraction of FFP. Although it can be used in cases of factor VIII shortages, factor VIII concentrate is the product of choice. Factor IX would be the therapy for a patient with hemophilia B, and lastly, recombinant 7A is used for hemophilia patients who have unfortunately developed inhibitors against the replacement coagulation factor. Patients usually know if they have inhibitors or may have a bracelet or tag alerting you to this, so don't forget to address this with your hemophiliac patients. You're up next. A 22-year-old woman presents with lower abdominal pain and abnormal vaginal discharge for four days. She's sexually active with multiple partners and does not consistently use barrier contraception. She has bilateral adnexal tenderness and yellow discharge on pelvic exam. Her urine pregnancy test is negative. In addition to a one-time dose of ceftriaxone, what is the appropriate outpatient course of antibiotics for this patient? Is it A, azithromycin 1 gram PO once, B, ciprofloxacin 500 milligrams PO BID for 14 days, C, doxycycline 100 milligrams PO BID for 14 days, or D, metronidazole 500 milligrams PO BID for 14 days? The answer here should be choice C, doxycycline 100 milligrams PO for 14 days, as this presentation is consistent with pelvic inflammatory disease. Exactly. The easy slip-up here would be confusing PID with cervicitis. Patients with PID often have lower abdominal pain, cervical motion tenderness, and adnexal tenderness. They may also have fever, abnormal vaginal discharge, an elevated ESR and CRP, and an elevated white count. It's typically caused by gonorrhea and or chlamydia. PID can present quite severely and require IV antibiotics and admission. However, the patient is tolerating PO, as you mentioned, ceftriaxone 250 mg IM and a course of doxycycline 100 mg PO, BID for 14 days would be optimal treatment. Cervicitis, on the other hand, which is simply inflammation and irritation of the cervix, is treated with ceftriaxone IM and a one-time dose of 1 gram of azithromycin. Nice review. Choice B, ciprofloxacin, that's wrong because the fluoroquinolones were formerly used to treat PID, but the CDC changed that recommendation due to the high incidence of resistance. Choice D, metronidazole, that's not part of the routine treatment, but it's occasionally added to treat trigeminiasis or concomitant anaerobic infection. I also have a quick bonus question for you here. Do you remember what Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome is? Yeah, Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome is a parahepatitis associated with PID. It's not an easy diagnosis to make and it's pretty rare. Patients often present with right upper quadrant pain. They might not have any pelvic pain at all. Abdominal ultrasound may be normal, and if concerned, these patients typically require CT. Interesting, I hadn't heard that. Clearly the theme this week is pediatrics, though, and we're headed back to the pediatrics ER for the next one. A six-year-old boy presents with a fever of 38.5, sore throat, and tender anterior cervical adenopathy. He does not have a cough, and he does not have a runny nose. His younger sister was treated for strep last week, and his mother wants an antibiotic for him as well. According to the modified Centaur criteria, which of the following is the most appropriate next step? Is it A, empiric antibiotic treatment for strep pharyngitis, B, rapid antigen detection testing, C, strep antibody titers, or D, tonsillectomy when he recovers from his infection? Although most episodes of pharyngitis are viral, in this case, the patient likely needs choice A, empiric antibiotic treatment for strep according to the modified Centaur criteria. That's the right answer, but why don't you walk us through the modified Centaur score? Sure. You get one point for each of the following. Tonsillar exudates, tender anterior cervical adenopathy, fever by history, absence of cough, and age less than 15 years old. For age over 45, subtract one point. So if I added it up correctly for this patient, he has a score of 4. What do I do with that score? With a score of 4 or higher, patients are at high risk for strep pharyngitis and should be treated empirically. Patients with a score of 2 or 3 
should be tested with a rapid antigen test or the culture. Positive tests require antibiotic therapy, and patients with a score of 0 or 1 don't require testing or antibiotic treatment. And the treatment of choice here would, of course, be IM benzathine penicillin or a 10-day course of an oral antibiotic. Exactly. And remember that although we're treating to make the patient feel better, we're also treating to prevent the potentially harmful sequelae of acute rheumatic fever. Great point. Let me review the modified Centaur score one more time before you load up the next question. You get one point for tonsillar exudates, one point for tender anterior cervical adenopathy, one point for fever by history, another point for absence of cough, and lastly, one point for an age less than 15 years old. In age over 45, you subtract one point. If you have zero to one point, you treat supportively only. Two to three points and you test and treat only if positive. Four or more points, you don't need a test and you can just empirically treat. Great review. Let's move on to the next question. A 48-year-old homeless man is brought in by EMS. He's been walking outside in the snow for many hours wearing only tennis shoes. He's unable to feel his feet. On exam, his feet are cold to touch, whitish in color, and swollen. He has delayed capillary refill and multiple clear, fluid-filled bullet on his toes. Which of the following is the most appropriate temperature range for a water immersion bath? Is it A, 35 to 36 degrees Celsius, B, 37 to 39 degrees Celsius, C, 40 to 42 degrees Celsius, or D, 43 to 45 degrees Celsius? So it's abundantly clear that this patient has frostbite, and I'm going to guess that the treatment of choice here is choice B, warm water immersion at a temperature between 37 to 39 degrees Celsius, since that's the closest to the body's normal temperature. Perfect. Temperatures less than 37 don't sufficiently warm tissues, so A is wrong. And for answers C and D, those are wrong because temperatures greater than 40 don't warm the tissues any faster and are associated with increased pain. In fact, temperatures above 42 can even cause harm. That all makes sense. Although the treatment of choice is always going to be rewarming, there are several degrees of frostbite that we should all be aware of. First degree frostbite affects the epidermis and is characterized by erythema and edema. Second degree frostbite affects both the epidermis and the dermis. It's characterized by hard edema and clear blisters. Third degree frostbite goes one layer further to affect the hypodermis. It's characterized by hemorrhagic boli and a gray pale extremity. Lastly, fourth degree frostbite affects the skin, muscles, tendons, and bones. The tissues are insensate and may be black and gray. Right, and first through third degree frostbite are all associated with increasing levels of pain with rewarming. But fourth degree frostbite is actually painless during the rewarming process due to significant nerve injury. Don't forget to appropriately analgesies patients while rewarming them. All right, so you're up for the last question here. A 19-year-old man with diabetes presents with penile pain and dysuria. Physical examination reveals a tender erythematous glands with a curdy whitish discharge. The patient states he has had similar episodes in the past. What management is indicated? Is it A, azithromycin and ceftriaxone, B, ciprofloxacin, C, clotrimazole cream, or D, hydrocortisone cream? What you're describing here is definitely balanitis, which is treated with an antifungal such as clotrimazole, choice C. Absolutely. And if you didn't get it from the description above of a tender erythematous glands with a curdy whitest discharge, head over to the blog at roshreview.com forward slash blog to see the associated image, which might help you with the diagnosis in the future. Balanipositis, that's inflammation of the glands and foreskin, and balanitis are unfortunately all too common complications of uncontrolled diabetes. The most common cause is candida, although group A strep, trauma, and contact dermatitis have all been implicated. Treatment is typically with an antifungal, as well as adequate hygiene and glycemic control. The finding of balanitis in an otherwise healthy individual should prompt further investigation for diabetes with a finger stick and other testing as indicated. Excellent. And before we move on to the rapid review, let's run through the other answer choices here. Choice A, azithromycin and ceftriaxone. That's the treatment of choice for gonorrhea and chlamydial infections like urethritis. 
Choice B, ciprofloxacin, would be the treatment of choice for UTIs in pilo, but would be inadequate treatment for bacterial balanitis. Choice D, hydrocortisone cream, that can be used to reduce the inflammation associated with severe balanitis, but would not be the primary therapy of choice for a fungal balanitis, as this patient clearly has. Great, let's move on to the rapid review from this week's episode. Acute otitis media is most commonly caused by viral pathogens. In cases of bacterial infection, strep, haemophilus, and moraxilla are the three most common causes. The treatment of choice is amoxicillin. A cloudy tympanic membrane and impaired mobility of the tympanic membrane have a high likelihood ratio for otitis media, whereas a red tympanic membrane does not. Hemophilia A is caused by decreased synthesis of factor VIII. Hemophilia B, or Christmas disease, is caused by decreased synthesis of factor IX. Both hemophilia A and hemophilia B are X-linked recessive disorders. Hemophilia A is treated with factor VIII replacement, and hemophilia B is treated with factor IX supplementation. Alternatively, cryoprecipitate can be used in cases of shortages. PID is typically caused by gonorrhea and or chlamydia. It's treated with ceftriaxone 250 mg IM once, and doxycycline 100 mg PO BID for 14 days if the patient can tolerate PO. Don't confuse PID with the more benign cervicitis, which is treated with ceftriaxone and a single dose of one gram of azithromycin. Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome is a perihepatitis associated with PID. It's a difficult diagnosis to make, but suspected in those with both pelvic and right upper quadrant pain. In the modified Centaur score, you get one point for tonsillar exudates, one point for tender anterior cervical adenopathy, one point for fever by history, one point for absence of cough, and lastly, one point for age less than 15 years old. For an age over 45, you should subtract one point. When calculating a modified Centaur score, for a score of 0 to 1, treat supportively. 2 to 3 points, test and treat only if positive. And 4 or more points, empirically treat. The mainstay of treatment is amoxicillin. Frostbite should be treated with immersion in a warm water bath at 37 to 39 degrees Celsius. Water at a higher temperature will warm no faster and can cause increased pain and potentially damaged tissue. Balanitis is an infection of the glands typically caused by a candidal infection. Treatment is with clotrimazole cream. So that wraps up Roshcast episode 14. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more high-yield rapid review.